This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 335, April the 5th, 1995. Our subject this evening is now welfare reform. One of the problems we face today is that welfare is eating into the uh, future of this country. The cost is so great, and we could add to welfare foreign aid because most of our foreign aid constitutes a kind of welfare. But welfare is so costly that it has made us deeply in debt as a country. On top of that, it has cut into our financial resources to the point that the infrastructure of the United States is approaching, in many instances, the state of collapse. We are not told, but the number of bridges that collapse each year in the United States is a startling fact. In the major cities, the water mains, especially New York City, are regularly breaking Municipally owned power lines are often uh, producing blackouts. In one sphere after another, including roads, the federal, state, and county governments are no longer able to function as they once did because they are so deeply in debt. As a result, there are those who are recognizing that The problem is a critical one, and a critical area is welfare reform, because it is creating a class now, third and fourth generation peoples, who are dependent entirely upon reform, and who are increasingly an expense in another sphere. They are very closely associated with uh, crime. So the crime bill and the welfare bill, the foreign aid bill, these things are staggering in their implications for us. I have heard it said how true it is, I cannot verify, that if we eliminated these or had not indulged in them, the United States would today be in a net plus situation instead of a debtor nation. So, welfare reform is a very, very urgent matter. Welfare has been destructive not only of the financial future of the United States and of other countries that have welfare problems, but it is also destructive of the moral future of every country that indulges in it. Welfareism creates a serious problem. St. Paul knew what he was talking about when he said, He that will not work, let him not eat. Now the early church was very, very open-handed in helping all those in genuine need. But the need had to be genuine 
and they were encouraged to work and were helped towards the working process. The idea was that they should not learn to be dependent because that dependency would create a moral problem. So we have bankrupted ourselves financially and we have created morally a major crisis uh, for ourselves as have other nations that are doing it. Now, there is another aspect to this the impact on those who receive welfare is very bad. But the impact on the others is not good either because one of the things that happens when you have a large welfare population is that it creates a major rift, whether you go back to ancient Rome or to any other culture, between the people who receive the welfare and those who are working. There is a hatred both ways, a resentment, a hostility. It's a dehumanizing thing in that you begin to treat people as uh, somehow uh, unfit uh, to associate with or unfit to live, although it's not openly stated so, but there is a hatred of the welfare recipient. Then there is a self-hatred of the welfare recipients. They are hostile, they are resentful, and from ancient times they have been hostile to the basic culture, the country, even though it's feeding them. There's no gratitude they begin to assume that the welfare is a right. And whether it's a Roman mob or an American welfare group, they insist that it is their right. Well, when you create a group that insists on rights and wants to live off the rest of the population in terms of those supposed rights, you have a major problem in society. Not many uh, nations have been able to wean themselves from this problem. They are destroyed by it. The great exception was Great Britain. In uh, the early 1800s, the fear of uh, revolution with the example of the French Revolution led a great many English politicians to extend the dole and it created a major economic burden and a handicap for the country. Finally, they simply cut it off and there were those who felt that in a few years, mid-century, they would be faced with a major problem because of all these non-working peoples and a major problem in terms of possible revolution and rioting. But what happened was that in a short time the people were gainfully employed and Britain entered into her greatest power 
in the latter half of the century into World War I, so that instead of suffering as was expected, Britain prospered greatly. So we do have that example, which incidentally has not received adequate attention from historians. Well, with that, Douglas, would you like to comment further on the whole subject of welfare reform? Well, the the startling fact that this country is in debt to the tune of five and a half trillion dollars means that we have squandered all of the wealth that was built up during the Industrial Revolution, and in addition, we have mortgaged the future of our children for generations to come. Uh, that's an awful lot to throw away. The, along the lines of what you were saying, I heard a radio commentator within the last few days comment on the fact that there are now three workers for every individual who is drawing Social Security. And within 50 years, assuming that the purchasing power of the dollar stays the same, which we have no reason to believe that it will, uh, judging on recent experience, that uh, there will be two workers for every recipient of Social Security, and the radio commentator said that he would like to thank his two workers in advance. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Great Britain. I, I I think the the mindset is still there. They've, they pulled back from the brink only because they had a recent example with the French Revolution uh, of what happens when things go too far. Unfortunately, uh, people's memories are very short, and we don't have any such recent example. And uh, I think that uh, we're much less likely to pull back from the brink uh, as Britain did, although you talk to many people in Britain and they still have, uh, you know, the mindset that uh, they want the government to take care of them. And uh, it's awfully hard to break people after successive, many successive generations of welfare dependency. Uh, frankly, I don't see, I see very little willpower or backbone politically uh, or culturally in this country to reverse that trend. Uh, if the sentiment was strong among the people to give up the uh, dependency, welfare dependency, then there would probably be a little more political willpower to do so. But we've seen successive attempts which have all been shams, have all been abandoned, uh, Graham-Rudman deficit reduction, the, and there's a whole litany of deficit reduction plans that were uh, politically timed prior to an election uh, to give the facade of uh, deficit reduction, but nothing has actually resulted in any, in any positive results in that direction. And even with a, uh, a more conservative Congress, there's still at least a third to a half of the Republican congressmen who uh, can't bite the bullet. And uh, 
they've fallen in the trap along with everybody else because they're looking at $3.5 million pensions, individual pensions when they retire, and uh, they want to keep the game going as long as possible so that they get to collect. So the selfishness of all of these people and the selfishness in our society at large that they want to get theirs and they don't care what happens to generations down the road is, as Rush has said, is uh, breeding a terrible contempt, a generational contempt uh, that eventually will erupt, I think, in uh, a major upheaval in this country. And I don't see... The politicians are already... I notice it's... it's uh, very curious, you know, that there are some politicians that are saying, well, the church should take a bigger role in uh, dispensing of welfare, which to me means that uh, none of them want to give up any power. They would like to take credit for the idea, even though the idea uh, of uh, the church taking care of people is older than they are, um, they still would like to take credit for expressing that idea and gain political mileage from it. But it also uncovers a little, that they harbor just a little bit of fear in the pit of their stomach that we are nearing the brink of uh, no return where civil disorder will get totally beyond government's control. And uh, we may very well sink into the kind of uh, widespread violence that we've already seen indications of in uh, the L.A. riots, uh, New York, the lights went off and uh, earthquakes. Uh, immediately there are people out looting stores and so forth. It doesn't take much. I mean, the veneer is so thin yes. that it doesn't take much, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's an economic disaster, whether it's a political reversal, it doesn't take much to pull the plug on and bring this house of cards down. And the uh, recent drop of the dollar against foreign currencies means that the U.S. government has begun to print money and that the foreign uh, currency traders and bond traders are wise to the game and they're not buying it. They're not going to buy any more U.S. dollars. They're unloading U.S. dollars and forcing the dollar down against other major industrialized uh, countries' currencies. And um, uh, so Mr. Clinton and Mr. Greenspan's game here of trying to hide this, uh, this deficit spending is not working because they're operating in a glass house. And uh, they're scared to death. The White House is scared to death of the bond traders. And they've made a lot of very derogatory remarks about uh, the economy being controlled by bond traders. But all of this has to do with when the government breaks its promises to the welfare class, which it's dancing around now trying to, to pull off. They want to cut a little here and cut a little there and cut a little somewhere else. And you see the immediate reaction. And it's not a mild reaction. It's not a complaint. It's a vicious reaction. The kind of rhetoric that's been used of accusing uh, 
them of Nazism uh, using the vilest language, the strongest terms, the 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 strongest imagery that they can in their in their uh, uh, discussions in Congress to try to put down these cuts to the welfare class uh, because they know what the what the end game is. And uh, I think it's uh, it's very illustrative uh, that. Uh, we're getting very, very close to the point where government is no longer, no longer going to be able to control this economy. Welfare reform will probably come as a result of uh, economic collapse because when the money's gone, the welfare is gone, and then something else will have to take over. And the only other option is the church. It's the only other organization. It's the only other institution that knows how, and it's the only other institution that has the unselfish motivation to do so, whereas government has a selfish motivation at every turn because it's how they maintain power by dispensing the goodies through welfare. It's how they buy the votes. But when the money's gone, they can't buy the votes. So all of these people are going to go off in their own direction. So uh, welfare reform is, I don't believe, is uh, going to come about through any political action. I think it's going to come about through economic upheaval, and uh, the church will then have to step up to the plate. Andrew Sandlin. Americans under 50 really don't know what it's like to live in a society that is not undergirded by these social safety nets. So I'm going to cast the ball back to Rush for a minute. I want him to give us something of the history of the development of the welfare idea going back to FDR and the New Deal. Maybe that will give some perspective to some of our listeners who can't conceive of a society except one that is a welfare society. Prior to about 1907, welfare in this country was local and private to a very great extent. It was only with the 1907 recession or depression that uh, as an aftermath, uh, Pendergast, a Kansas City politician, decided a good way to power was to persuade the voters that instead of having the churches and Christian organizations take over welfare in times of crisis, that the cities, counties, and states do so. He went around lecturing, and someone who knew him and recalled that told me about it years ago, that if a fraction of a penny were added to everyone's tax bill, it would provide an accumulation of funds to take care of such crises and the churches could go back to their business of preaching Christ. Well, of course, Pendergast was not noted for being full of the milk of human kindness and what was a fraction of a penny became in time a tremendous part of everyone's tax bill. In fact, in most counties today, your property tax uh, can run 
uh, and its welfare and education costs between 60 and 80 percent of your property tax. Well, that started it so that when Roosevelt proposed that now we have the nation do this, Congress bought it, the American people bought it, and it created welfareism as we know it. It was a very ugly thing from the beginning. There were many, many uh, terrible exploitations of welfare recipients during the New Deal years, which I think now are perhaps routine and nobody thinks anything about it. Uh, the sexual exploitation alone of the women on welfare was very, very ugly. But when you create power in the state over the lives of people through welfare, and you're going to give them the welfare, what happens in time is that not only is the welfare boss, so to speak, corrupted, but the recipient is corrupted. So we've had a tremendous corruption that's ensued, and perhaps the major corruption is that Christians no longer see it as their responsibility yes. to care yeah, one for right. another and for those outside the faith, and to use these crises as a time when they can witness to people on the mercy that is in Christ. Yes, I think it shouldn't go without <clears throat> mentioning that we need to recognize that taxation for the purpose of redistributing wealth is nothing more than theft. Yes. And uh, that means that we have a larcenous state that we live in, as of course is almost all of Europe now. And we should also bear in mind that the modern welfare state tends to encourage immorality. And that's chiefly uh, occurring in the case of a a single woman who has numerous children if this woman actually marries one of the fellows who impregnated her then she's going to lose welfare benefits but if she has more children out of wedlock then uh, she of course is able to seize more state funds these are all things that of course need to be changed but um, I'm, I suspect that a lot of the talk about welfare reform in Washington, D.C., and I'll have to agree with Douglas, is nothing more than just paper talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that the people there, for the most part, are interested in principle change. Um, I think they just want to slow the train down a little bit. I think a good example of a welfare culture or subculture are, are the Indians. That is, the Indians, I mean, that stayed on the reservation. They've been promised for generations now that if you stay on the reservation, you'll get this privilege and that privilege and this amount each month. And they've been promised this now for several generations. And what it's turned them into is completely helpless, completely um, non-ambitious, in a subculture with problems with alcoholism, 
Their educational system, despite government funds, is uh, the poorest by all standards. The um, and then massive amounts of the welfare has been misappropriated, and it's been one of the, if probably the worst government bureaucracy for many, many years. And right. recognized as such, and this and it's been going on for longer, perhaps than than. Mm -hmm. And what we normally think of as welfare and aid to dependent families and such as that. Our this is what it does to people. You know, our major cities have become, in effect, reservations for the white underclass yes. and the black mm -hmm. underclass. Everything that you said there, point by point, can be applied to all of these other groups that are living in the inner city. The educational system has collapsed. The, uh, the crime problem is enhanced. The drug problem is enhanced. The illegitimacy rate is enhanced. Every they're they're uh, uh, really prisoners. I mean, they literally can't leave town. They can't go anywhere because they don't dare leave the place where they get their welfare check. I mean, they're they're as much on the reservation as an Indian is. I mean, it's just a different geographical location. And the ones who do break out of the system, whatever group they're in, when they break out of the system, they're they're viewed with nothing but contempt. Mm -hmm. As somehow they they've sold out and by become, the, you know, become by one of one of their yeah. horrible abusers the because they become wealthy and they become <laughs> ambitious. Mm -hmm. I would say it is worse, Mark, on the uh, in the inner city than on the reservation. Uh, for this very good reason, in the early years when the reservations were set up, uh, a little land was set aside for missions so that uh, most of the reservations have a Christian mission, Catholic or Protestant and this creates a kind of counter uh, balance and counter culture but the inner city doesn't have anything comparable because whatever is there is treated with contempt and uh, and I know of one instance where the only way the church could survive in the ghetto was to build a cyclone fence around it and open the parking lot and the front door, all fenced off, only when a meeting was going to be held, because otherwise the place would be vandalized. I think it can't be emphasized too strongly that the Bible does not vest civil government with the responsibility of furnishing welfare and charity. That is just no. a modern fiction. Uh, and there are people my age and many of them older that assume, well, if someone is to be taken care of, the only source of that care, the civil government. What other source could there be? Mm -hmm. That's why I brought up earlier your, the need for you to comment on that, Rush, that we need to get back to the idea of first the family and then the church after the family, and the Bible's clear that it should be family first mm -hmm. and then the church, to uh, care for financial needs. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the problems is we've we've been uh, our culture has been creating its own need for the welfare state by destroying the family. That's right. Whatever, yes. whatever we've destroyed the family, we've destroyed the church, we've uh, pulled ourselves away from the church. I guess you could say, uh, 
and we've therefore destroyed the authority of the family, we've destroyed the financial independence from the family through taxation, through uh, inflation, through inheritance taxes, we've created a, an artificial need or an appeared need for the welfare system. Once government takes over anything, it's almost impossible to reform it. That's why reform can't come from the government. That's right. When the government takes something over, how do you change the system? We have to change the government. That's right. That's, that's a, a massive task. That's right. That's why the government can't really reform anything. All they can do is control it. Well, in every instance, when you ask the government to get rid of something, you automatically get more of it. <laughs> it becomes institutionalized. Rush, would you, uh, given Pendergast's uh, affiliation with organized crime, would you speculate that perhaps he got the idea uh, for this welfare scheme from the mafia who used to dispense favors in order to gain uh, power and influence in the uh, areas that they uh, operated in? He may have picked it up from them from observation, but uh, as far as any direct information, I don't know. But I think that's a good insight on your part. The Mafia is increasingly allied with uh, civil government. And I was not surprised when somebody was at a dinner meeting recently. They sat down with prominent politicians and the local Mafia boss. Uh, the, they walk on the same side of the street. They have uh, close ties with one another, and the people are the victims. Maybe we can discuss the furor created in Washington, D.C. the last few weeks, as this is being recorded, over any mention of any sort of welfare reform. Mm -hmm. And especially, of course, the liberals were just uh, crying and speaking slanderously about uh, taking food away from children and all that sort of thing. That's one of their pet peeves, uh, uh, pet loves rather. It turned into a pet peeve when they, uh, when it was attacked. Uh, an irrational hatred, an irrational hatred for any uh, statement of necessity of welfare reform. Well, they became hysterical. I mean, the the discussion, the, the rhetoric became hysterical. Yes, exactly. Because they see their power base eroding. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I have to wonder how many people are there left in this country that don't understand the linkage between the liberal establishment in this country and the power base that they, the constituency that they've created over the past 40 or 50 years. They have, they have bought votes for years with the promise of redistributing wealth. I mean, they have done that for many years. Before going further, I'd like to uh, comment on a couple of things that uh, you called attention to, Douglas. We should not be surprised that uh, the mainline churches and some not mainline have protested the idea of welfare cuts. They are receiving vast sums to maintain their traditional church charities from the federal government. The Catholic Charities and the Protestant Charities alike receive considerable funds. And I'm sorry to say that even uh, 
the Salvation Army now gets quite a bit of uh, money. Then there's another thing you called attention to that I'd like to stress emphatically. You indicated that you believe that inflation was going to draw, destroy welfareism. Well, now consider this fact that in 1938, I recall that uh, when some jobs opened up at $150 a month, there were thousands who applied. Those same jobs go for 3500 plus at present. Well, the difference is inflation. Now, what will happen as inflation speeds up as it will in the near future? The process of raising taxes and raising uh, welfare grants uh, will not be able to keep pace so that people who are drawing inflation will find that suddenly their money is worthless. It's uh, not doing what it once did and they cannot live on it. So it's going to create a major crisis for everyone drawing welfare when inflation takes off. Well, the thing I, the argument that I find disingenuous, and, and especially in the Republican side, is that we can grow our way out of this mm-hmm. uh, deficit. That the the uh, that there's limitless growth potential in the American yes, economy. That's right. What they fail to recognize or understand is that we no longer have an American economy. We have a global economy. Uh, the prices that we pay for things in this country are not set in this country. They're set by the world marketplace. And uh, unless the world's economy grows, there isn't going to be any increase in the number of, right. uh, you know, in the wealth in this country. We're not creating wealth. We're consuming wealth. That's right. And there's, there's no more to divide up. If you can't create more wealth, you can't create a bigger pie, then you can't make the slices bigger. And the politicians keep uh, uh, going back. We've got to grow the economy by tax cuts and so forth. And they absolutely will not address the spending side of the thing. And the political will, it's obvious that the political will is not there. And I don't think it's ever going to be there to make the cuts necessary in these uh, entitlement programs uh, to get the uh, deficit back under control. All they're really talking about in most cases, when they talk about um, ending a program, they they talk about stopping the increases, which is too little, way too late. Uh, We've already passed the point of no return. We need to think about major, if we're going to do something about serious about the national debt with some integrity, we need to talk about massive government surpluses to pay off the national debt which nobody wants to talk about. Balancing the budget isn't going to do it. We still have the national debt. It's more critical than the annual deficit. It's been accumulating for half a century. Well, they've already proven that you give them more dollars and they're going to spend them. Mm-hmm. They're not going to apply them to the, to the debt. Right. Well, we've been justifiably excoriating uh, basically socialism. Now let's talk about uh, what we need to do about it. Um, I would say, first of all, according to the Word of God, families must take 
responsibility for charity. I mean, the Bible is clear. Paul, in writing to Timothy, said that our piety must begin at home. And essentially, he was saying first at home and not in the church. The church only comes secondary, although it does have a, an important role. Um, and I'm going to bring up this topic of just the the uh, multiplicity of, of rest homes. And I don't want to talk a long time about that, but if possible, we need to care for our parents and, and older age and various relatives. Uh, this is com- uh, made almost impossible today because of great taxation and that sort of thing. But these are things that we need to start talking about. Families going back and taking care of these responsibilities that uh, they have foolishly vested in civil government. And then, of course, we need to talk about the church and her responsibility of charity. We need to take back these areas of welfare and charity so that the government won't be able to do anything. I think that may be a start. Yes, Paul tells us that we are to care for our own, which includes those of the household of faith, and if we do not, we are worse than an infidel. Yes. Well, historically, the church has done this from the New Testament times. Act 6 tells us the care of widows uh, in the Jerusalem church and the creation of deacons which simply continued an old Levitical function. Uh, The church took care of all such needs, and it did it for centuries. Only recently has it pulled out of this area. Since the early 1800s, it has withdrawn from the area of health, although... In this country especially, we had a lot of specifically and thoroughly Christian hospitals until fairly recent years. Now they are church hospitals. We had also, into the early 1800s, Christian schooling. And we had... uh, Christian charity that took care of all needs. In fact, the office of deacon was created in the book of Acts, as I indicated, to succeed the Levites in order to care for this. And over the centuries, the amount of work they have done has been enormous, enormous, so that the Christian church has had Catholic and Protestant, a tremendous heritage of ministering to vast needs on the part of peoples. This has been abandoned, and it has not been good good for the church. It has led to a kind of wishy-washy pietism, uh, to an absorption in uh, getting to heaven rather than doing... God's kingdom work here on earth so that if anyone like Chalcedon reminds them of their duty and what God's law has to say about this somehow we are the people who are off base now I feel very strongly about this and before I began Chalcedon I felt that there were three areas we had to address 
in addition to putting the Christian faith on solid theological, biblical foundations. So besides the work of scholarship, we had to enter education. And we have had our part there, and we have someone dedicated full-time now to the homeschooling cause, Sam Blumenfeld. Then there is the area of Christian charity. And we have uh, more than one iron in the fire there, all under the direction of John Upton. And I'd like to stress with those who hear this tape that we do need money for that. We're taking over things that other people are giving up by default. Instead of moving aggressively forward at this time as Christian churches to increase the evangelization work and to increase the charitable ministries, the church is pulling back in both spheres. And we want to help those groups that have been abandoned. This is what, of course, we had a meeting about recently for two, three days. How to go about handling this problem. Now, uh, we have a great many causes that are looking to us because they've been abandoned. And I hope the people who listen to us will increase their report, uh, support and indicate that they will continue to do so. Uh, times are harder for all of us. But this makes the need in the area of Christian missions and Christian charity all the more urgent. Rush, I want to extend one point that you brought up. We need to recognize that this work is not somehow less spiritual than evangelism and that sort of thing. This pietistic attitude that pervades evangelicalism today would say, well, you folks at Chalcedon are sort of mimicking the liberal idea of the social gospel, which is a total slander. Uh, They're more interested, of course, in personal Bible study and revival meetings and that sort of thing and tend to denigrate what we're talking about. But as the text that you mentioned indicates, just the opposite is true. Our theology is not sound if it's not put into practice in these areas. So we need to just completely abolish, if possible, this pietistic attitude that godly welfare and godly charity is somehow secondary to prayer or Bible reading. They're all important, and we need to engage in all of them. I think it's important, since we're talking about welfare and uh, charity, the difference really, maybe we shouldn't even be calling it Christian welfare. Charity um, is based on love and showing Christ's love to others. And charity cannot be without law. That's right. And welfare, as we know it today, is often a very lawless thing, and it mm-hmm. subsidizes people in a lawless and uh, an anarchistic lifestyle. And uh, it is completely divorced from any concept of morality. And it's, it's uh, self-destructive. Yes. I mean, many of these people have become self-destructive. They get on drugs, yes. and uh, they destroy themselves. They destroy their children and their families. 
it's totally uh, it's totally self-destructive. Well, as Rush has pointed out for many years, the main form of government is self-government, and that's what it destroys. Modern welfareism destroys self-government, forces the individual to be reliant on uh, the state. And no wonder he uh, feels so depressed and despondent, and then after a while inverts that to emphasize that he has certain rights, a right to a certain standard of living and that sort of thing. That's why there has to be the theological declaration that this is wrong, plus the putting into practice of the sort of welfare and charity that we're talking about. But we can we can never really restore family welfare and private welfare as long as we carry this massive tax burden. Because yes. to the extent that we are heavily taxed and we are paying 20, 25, 30 percent or more of our income to the government, we are slaves ourselves right. to the government. Yeah, but there's right. another tax, and that's the the interest tax that you pay. People have got to get out of debt, and yes. I mean totally clear of debt. That's right. Because that interest that you pay could go to much better purposes uh, in Christian charities, and it's it's a heavy burden for many many families. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, if there's one major thing that people can do to get their lives squared away and improve their their lives in many spheres, that's simply to get rid of the debt. That's right. But, but that debt interest, well, let's take the major form of, of indebtedness most people go into, and that's purchasing a home. The reason people feel pressured into purchasing expensive real estate is because of inflation and the assumption that if they don't go into debt now, when they're young, that they'll never be able to own property. And the government fostered that by giving tax incentives for indebtedness. Absolutely. They have fostered, they've created the inflation because right. the real estate is a hedge against inflation. So the government has created this situation where people are in debt. We are no, we're, it's hard to even call ourselves a capitalistic economy. We don't work on capital as much as we work on manipulating debt. The government right. manipulates Absolutely. debt. People manipulate their debt and they invest their future in how, how we can beat this inflation and with our own indebtedness. And the great irony of this, I'm always struck in reading Deuteronomy 28 how the, the Lord says, if you obey my law, you will be the lender. You will not be the debtor. And just the opposite is true today in the church. Yes. The church is so deeply in debt. And uh, I think that has to be, Mark, as you said, that has to be reversed. If we follow the law of God long term, then we should be the ones that are lending. We should not be the ones that are that are borrowing, going into debt. Yes, and many a church uh, goes into debt, figuring and deeply into debt. They're going to cash in on inflation, and now they're in trouble because uh, the economy is faltering, and the church's income is not very good. Yeah. And others have gone into vast. Uh, building programs believing that they're not going to have to pay for it because the rapture is going to come and uh, yes. they're going to beat the dealer yes now barring on speculated in future income is a foolish idea and all of us here have seen churches I'm thinking one right now in Georgia that a number of years ago built a huge auditorium and got into terrible trouble because of that um, it's just 
utterly wicked. I mean, we need to say what it is. It really is wicked. Well, they fall into the same trap uh, many people do. They uh, buy or build something that's far greater than they can afford, uh, far greater debt than they can uh, service, and then the, the property values drop in a particular area. And uh, the lender's looking at a sure loss because right. uh, if he had to unload the property, they couldn't they couldn't even uh, recover the amount of money that's owed. You know, another factor, too, uh, we think of young Christian couples getting married. There is this illusion that they must uh, have everything all at once, brand new furniture all the time and new automobiles and all that sort of thing, and they'll go head over heels in debt to do it. And yes. uh, as you well know, Rush, years ago that was not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, they strapped themselves into debt. and. By the way, we're not mainly talking about marriage, but one of the chief problems in marriage is financial difficulties. Yes. And that's one reason that contributes to so much unnecessary divorce and family problems and that sort of thing, precisely because of that problem with respect to debt and financial management. Well, a lot of it is unrealistic expectations, too, and some of these unrealistic expectations are, are generated by the parents. You know, my yes. daughter has to live in a big house exactly. and drive a big car and so forth and and uh, that just doesn't work very well when you're first starting out. I think one of the things every church needs to do is to say what about the poor and the elderly in our midst or near us? Do we have deacons? Are the deacons doing anything about it? And if not, why not? We've got to empower the deacons to do it. And if we are too small a group to be able to do something, we need to seek some other agency that can do it for us. Right. Perhaps a group in the community or perhaps a group elsewhere. We, to all practical intent, do have a deacon in John Upton whose work is to minister to these areas of need and uh, I, I think that uh, there's no excuse for not making the diaconate again a key ministry I wrote some months ago an article on the unknown John Calvin and it really distresses me that uh, I got virtually no response to it. But the point I made there was how important John Calvin felt that the diaconate was. They took care of the sick, of the needy, of the travelers, of children, of education, of health, a vast variety of things. And they took up an offering every Sunday for the church's work and for the diaconate's work. Yes. Can you imagine what congregations would think about that now, a double offering? They would be irate. Yes. And yet, the people in Geneva who were attending the services uh, were not as prosperous as the average congregation is today. But they did believe, and Calvin so taught, that a church was to be defined by the true preaching of the Word of God and by the faithful ministry of the deacons to human needs. 
And we have abandoned that whole perspective. Exactly right. Most churches today, if they're going to spend money, want to spend it on the new gymnasium, the new Sunday school wing. In other words, ecclesiastical creature comfort, something that they can brag about. And uh, that's just a... Yes, those are very good. If that's right. they have respect for God's mandate with regard to the diaconate. Absolutely. Of themselves, they're not wrong, but uh, certainly the uh, priority is wrong if they're not concerned with uh, godly charity. Well, it would give me great joy if deacons were once again made important in the life of the church. In terms of uh, what Calvin set forth and what the New Testament did in Acts, it meant that the deacons were like the elders, very important. It was simply that they had different tasks. Now the uh, deacons are of very little importance in most churches in terms of their historic calling. I think there's one more point here that's always puzzled me. There's always been great fear when the government was going to impose regulations on Christian organizations that take money from the federal government. If you take money from the federal government, you dance to their tune. Don't take the money. That's right. Yes. There's another interesting development here. Uh, The modern seminary has increasingly stressed the ministry as a profession. And they've tried to raise standards with regard to it and so on. In the process, they've forgotten that the ministry is a calling. That's right. And there's a world of difference between a profession and a calling. And today, the absence of a calling on the part of ministers, elders, and deacons is quite pronounced. Yes. And we need to get back uh, to that. In fact, I think pulpit committees should uh, try to ascertain whether the man they are interviewing for the ministry sees himself as a professional or a man with a calling. That's right. The distinction is critical. And again, we've been talking about the church, but we should not forget about the responsibility of the family for family members. That, too, is an act of godly charity and caring for family members. And uh, it's remarkable that um, there's so many Christians today that leave their family and want to go out and do a, quote, great job for God that will get them some uh, popularity or notoriety. But really, uh, the Word of God is clear that they're first of all responsible to their to their family members. Mm-hmm. And not a few homes have been destroyed, ministers' homes and homes of others, uh, precisely because of that um, because of that failure of not not caring for the for the family. Well, our time is nearly over. Do any of you have any 
statements you'd like to make before we conclude? Well, I think if there's going to be any chance at welfare reform, it's going to come from the bottom up. I just hope that it doesn't come up too too quickly and turn the boat upside down. It's, uh, the church will have to recognize its responsibilities. Families will have to recognize their responsibilities. Individuals will have to recognize their responsibilities. And perhaps if that... I think it's beginning to take place already. I see, you know, a lot of hopeful signs where... Uh, a lot of people are getting out of debt. They are getting the family situations squared away, and they're they're getting in a position where they can help others. If you can't help yourself, it's kind of tough to help somebody else. Yeah. So I think that uh, it's beginning to happen from the bottom up, yes. and welfare reform is hopefully going to be a gradual process that will gain momentum and uh, take over when the government collapses. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you.